How extensive were the persecutions? Well, uh, not like that. Like they didn't go through house to house, and you know, it wasn't like thousands, thousands of people, but it was, uh, was you know, a pretty good enough. Basically, anyone who was sort of publicly supporting icons, the monks and such, uh, they they caused more people. I think it was making examples of some to get the rest either to leave town or keep quiet, you know, go along with things. Uh, so Theophilus, I think he was very violent, but uh, somehow, but when he died, actually, the iconoclast cause was lost. I mean, what now? Because after his death, Theodore restored, but then the support for iconoclasm was gone. And the reason was that during that time, the writings of Antipas and Theodore uh, both really are dealing with the Christological. I mean, these, these are uh, carrying forward essentially the themes of the Sixth Ecumenical Council, the uh, the divine, actually the continuation of the human properties in the, in the human nature of Christ, and how. Uh, okay, one of the things that Conoclast were saying is that. Okay, Christ is human and divine. Therefore, if you make a picture of him, you're not really showing Christ. Well, either you're either picturing the divine nature, or you're you're only showing half of Christ because Christ is both human and divine. But the point that these fathers make is that well, each nature, Christ as a, is a person who reveals himself in each nature. So when the apostles uh, saw Christ walking down the road, obviously. They're only able to see him doing that because he's doing that in his human nature, but they are actually seeing the second person of Trinity, the Son of God. It's the Son of God who's walking down the road, not someone else, or not, you know, only half, you know, it's not like they weren't really getting to see him. So, in far as he has, you know, human nature, he is able to be pictured, and, and his full uh, personhood of the Son of God is revealed in his humanity just as it would be revealed in his divinity. So uh, the person Christ as as a person was able to die in his human through his human nature. So it's not that well he couldn't he only could partly die, but no, he did die insofar and because he had human nature, he was able to do that. He was able to be born, he was able to die, he was able to be hungry. In the same way he's able to be pictured. So what these two fathers brought about was Kind of the full uh, integration of icons and the theology of, uh, in, of icons and, and saints into the pre-existing uh, Christological framework that had been developed in the previous uh, several councils, and that's why by the time, even though Theophilus was actually a very successful uh, emperor, you know, in some ways, although at the end he did have some defeats uh, that may have helped break this aura that, you know, only iconoclast emperors are able to win victories. But the uh, intellectual atmosphere, you know, uh, climate at Constantinople had been kind of transformed by these writers. Essentially, they were able to make the case that, you know, if we if we accept our Christology, then we have to have icons. And that's, that's just... Uh, they're inseparable. So... That's why the church's position, you know, at the beginning, the church, many of the bishops were willing to back the Iconoclasts. By the end, uh, 
there's really no theological support left for the Ekron class at the end of this 120-year period. Now, there's just some other thing I want to mention in connection with this, because I want to develop a two-part today, uh, which is the filioque problem. Is actually, the filioque controversy actually is developing at the same time that this is happening, but I'll do it in a later lecture, but I just want to talk about why the effect of iconoclasm, in a sense, uh, Leo uh, III and Constantine uh, are in some ways authors of the Rome, modern Roman Catholic Church because uh, the, the emperors uh, were imposing iconoclasm within the Byzantine Empire. So if you, didn't, if you wanted to have icons and you were a monk or something and you didn't want to be killed, well, you have to, you have to move. <laughs> and so they moved out to the periphery, and one of the places they moved was Italy. And the emperor decided, well, okay, I've gotten rid of all the icons, the supportive icons here in town and nearby. Now I want it, you know, I want to enforce iconoclasm out on the uh, outer parts of the empire too. So Leo sent an army to, well, first off, he, his decree, he issued it, Leo III, like, again, that's a different Leo, but uh, Leo III issued his decree in 730 requiring uh, the destruction of icons and sent that off to the Pope and the Pope said, uh, well, he, wasn't, no, he didn't want to do that and he, he had a little council in Rome where they, a local council where they supported icons and didn't go along with this. So the Emperor Leo uh, sent off an army to, to take care of the situation. But the uh, when, they, when the troops got to Italy, the people in Italy did not want to be, have iconoclasm imposed on them. And so what a lot happened is a lot of the Byzantine troops uh, in the, that were guarding the fortresses in central Italy, uh, they defected to the Lombards and gave the fortresses to them. And so this meant that, uh, are you familiar with the Papal States of the Middle Ages, kind of runs through central Italy? That used to all be Byzantine Italy. And so that was lost at this point mostly. The, the only thing that the Byzantines held on to was Ravenna. So all of central Italy, including Rome, up to the, up to the time of uh, Leo, had been part of the Byzantine Empire. The Pope was living in the Byzantine Empire. Now uh, it was all turned over to the Lombards. And they only, the only thing that they held on to was Ravenna, and actually even during a little later, Ravenna falls to the Lombards. So all of northern Italy now is gone. And the popes, uh, so Italy, not southern Italy, but uh, they held on to southern Italy and Sicily for longer, but central Italy goes under the Lombards now. And the popes, who previously had been defended by the Byzantine emperors and everything, uh, well, they, they don't, the Lombards are kind of a, a nuisance to them. You know, they don't want to be under the Lombards, but they can't very well call on the, on the iconoclast emperors to come rescue them, because they don't want to be under the iconoclast either. So, uh, during this time, the Pope Stephen II made a famous uh, journey over the Alps to go visit the king of the Franks. And uh, Pepin and he kind of made a deal with uh, him to put 
the papacy under the protection of the Franks. So this uh, introduced now Franks who up to this time had been sort of theoretically Byzantine subjects kind of living up in northern uh, <coughs> now are uh, being brought in as the, as the protectors and patrons of the popes. And this uh, after uh, and so the Franks come down and they drive the uh, to conquer the Lombards in what had been the Byzantine territory. And the Byzantine Emperor Constantine, uh, the iconoclast, writes to Charlemagne and says, hey, that's, that's Byzantine territory, so you know, please hand it back over. And this, uh, the popes didn't want that to happen, so they, they invented a little something, a little vibe. They made up a, something called the Donation of Constantine, which uh, was a document that uh, for a while was believed to be authentic, but it was in which the Emperor Constantine, uh, as part of his will, decided to donate uh, central Italy, you know, the Byzantine territory in Italy, to the Pope uh, to be, you know, his personal land. And this, uh, along with some other things, you know, kind of recognized the Pope as ruler over all kings and so on. But so Pope comes and oh well, but you know Constantine gave this land to, to the popes to be their land. So uh, Charlemagne says, oh okay, well if it's Pope's land, then I'll give it to you, not to the iconoclast emperor. We probably want to give it to him anyway. But uh, so all of a sudden we now have coming out of this. Okay, the Byzantine Empire is driven out of out of Rome, out of northern Italy. And, and, the, and the Pope is not, not just now a bishop or patriarch living in the Byzantine Empire, but he is now the uh, monarch of a secular country. And that's going to affect the whole way that the papacy develops in the Middle Ages, because the, the, the Pope is a secular ruler. So he, his whole policy and the way he does everything now has the additional uh, motivation of protecting his secular interests. So Pope becomes ruler of the space, and the and the uh, and the Pope now has the Frankish king as his protector. And in order to kind of uh, legitimize this relationship and formalize it, the Pope. Uh, uh, coronates uh, Charlemagne as emperor in uh, 800 AD. So, Alison, uh, so Charlemagne is, is uh, emperor, and that means now that the uh, the Byzantine emperor is no longer the only emperor, but is uh, so we have a Western Empire founded by the popes, and this will have several. Uh, bad effects. One is that it, uh, it creates a rivalry between the East and the West with two different sources of kind of, of authority. Uh, it makes the popes dependent on the Franks rather than on the Byzantine world. For their, and so it allows essentially the development of the Catholic Church. It develops really within, uh, within Charlemagne's territories and then ultimately becomes imposed on Rome from the Germans. The other uh, 
thing that happens is that okay, the at this there had been the the filioque had been adopted in Spain by the Spain had been taken over by the by the Muslims. Refugees came up into France, and the filioque comes up with them. The uh, the oh yeah the Charlemagne initially wants to have an alliance with with the uh, emperors in the east, effectively uh, with Irene's son. His daughter is engaged to Irene's son, and so that would have been very nice if Charlemagne, Emperor of the West, is you know, married to the daughter. Uh, I mean, so it's still they're, they're related. The father-in-law of the Emperor that would have been good, but the uh, Either the son or Irene, for some reason, they decided to break the engagement and have him marry somebody else. And that wasn't a good idea because that makes uh, Charlemagne pretty mad. And uh, so Charlemagne kind of decides that the Byzantine emperors are not really, you know, so he doesn't, no longer happy just being, you know, emperor number two. He decides that uh, people, over, the Byzantines over there really aren't the real emperors that are, after all, they're, they're just heretics over there anyway. Of course, this isn't the iconoclast anymore, it's Irene, you know. So, he has to find some reason why they're heretics. So, what, the thing he finds is the Seventh Ecumenical Council, our Seventh Ecumenical Council. Uh, he has theologians look at it for sources of heresy and finds two sources of heresy in it. One, that, uh, they are not saying the filioque, so that uh, the emperor, the patriarch Caratius, doesn't talk, doesn't you know, when talk about the Trinity, he doesn't mention the filioque, so that's a heresy, so that becomes condemned. And then the uh, the other thing is the veneration of icons, because in the uh, in the Latin translation, this distinction between veneration and worship is not made, but rather it's translated as that we are, you know. Approving of the worship of icons, and so the uh, so there's a book called the, the Caroline Books, which are uh, kind of written for Charlemagne, taking apart the uh, you know analyzing the Seventh Ecumenical Council to determine you know that it's all full of heresies. And what's curious is that uh, there's a council, the Council of Frankfurt is held shortly afterwards. And the uh, the council accepts these books and kind of repudiating you know, repudiating the Seventh Council as an heretical, and the uh, the lack of the filioque as heretical. And what's interesting is that the Pope, who had approved the Seventh Council, because he's now the the loyal client of Charlemagne, also has to approve the Council of Frankfurt. So he's he's approved the Seventh Council. He's also approved what the West considered an Ecumenical Council. Um, condemning our <laughs> at the same time. Uh, so uh, it was part of this new relationship now that the, Byzant the iconoclast movement having cut the popes off and forced them to rely on the Franks, the popes are now, even though, even where they're orthodox, are being forced to go along with what the Frankish uh, kings think, because that's who they're depending on for their survival. Um, Shortly after this, kind of the, with the, the Carolingian, so the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the, con the condemnation of the Byzantines for not having the Filioque, supported by the Council of Frankfurt, which is 
supported by the Pope, leads to, like, within a couple of years, that Emperor Charlemagne decides, well, yes, we need to affirm our orthodoxy versus those Byzantine heresies. So he puts the Filioque into the service in Aachen, in his capital, I think in like 802. Uh, so that begins the Filioque, sorry, I know, but uh, in, uh, in Germany. And that's where the whole Filioque controversy will begin when the Frankish monks go to Jerusalem and all of a sudden the uh, Orthodox monks in Jerusalem are noticing that there's now a change in the decree. And uh, that's what starts the Filioque controversy. So, so anyway, so the, the temporary uh, heresy of the Byzantine emperors ultimately is, is the initial cause of the split of the East and the West and is the cause of the, there's a, it leads to the Filioque being accepted in the West and, uh, and ultimately to the creation of what would be the modern Catholic Church. Right, is there any questions? Uh, oh.